0: It's a long way to Tipperary Hello everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War, episode 22. Last week, we discussed the situation in the Carpathians, with Austria-Hungary trying desperately, in some pretty horrific winter weather, to push the Russians back from the mountains, and being extremely unsuccessful at it. This week's episode once again finds us on the Eastern Front, as we find out what was happening in Prussia and northern Poland while the Austrians were having so much fun in the Carpathians. The attacks in the Carpathians had been going on for months, and while this was happening, the Germans had been attacking in the north in two large actions, that at Bolymov, and then at the Second Battle of the Masyrian Lakes. These battles come at a time when the Austrians were becoming more and more reliant on their German allies, and it will be after these battles that we will see even more German manpower shipped to the southern end of the front. There is also the continued strife in the German high command, as they continued to split into two different camps, an eastern camp centered on Ludendorff and a western camp centered on Falkenhayn. While there won't be too much drama around this discord in this episode, it is sort of that thing that sits at the back of everything. In January, Ludendorff decided that there would be another attack by the Germans on the eastern front. He just wasn't sure exactly where. After weighing the options, he settled on another attack in the middle of Poland, on the Vistula Plains. Yes, here again. This is roughly the same area that was attacked last November by the Germans. And they will be using roughly the same goals this time, uh, push the Russians back through Poland. The plan was to launch the attack at the end of January, using the Ninth Army near the Polish town of Bolimov. The most notable part of this battle is the use of poison gas. This would be the first use of gas in the war, something that will be more common later on. In this battle, the gas that was used was bromide, which is a type of concentrated tear gas. It wouldn't kill the Russian defenders, like later gases were designed to do, but instead was designed to incapacitate the Russians before the Germans attacked. The Germans would use almost 18,000 gas canisters that would be opened up all along the front, with the theory that the wind would carry it into the Russian lines. As it happened, the wind turned out to be unfavorable, and most of the gas ended up blowing back into the German lines. This sounds like it has the making for a complete catastrophe for the Germans, but the freezing temperatures at the front would end up preventing it from having much of an effect at all. I'm no chemist, uh, but if you believe Wikipedia, uh, it claims that the biggest reason for this ineffectiveness is that it was too cold for the gas to effectively form an aerosol so most of it ended up just staying on the ground, or drifting into the lines with a concentration so low that it didn't have an effect. So, interestingly, with a whole bunch of it blowing back into the lines, the Germans were pretty okay with it being not 100% effective. With the ineffective gas, the Germans would still begin their attack on the 31st of January. The German infantry would attack, but they would make very few gains, and nothing that was gained would end up being significant. When the initial attacks failed, the German commanders called the offensive off. This seems nice and logical to anybody looking at the past, but this is a time when generals all along the fronts were continuing completely ineffective attacks for days, until men and material were completely exhausted. The fact that the German generals took a step back and decided not to keep trying to attack was very smart, relatively speaking. The Russians, on the other hand, would counterattack with 11 divisions, all commanded by a single corps commander. Before the attack, General Rusky would tell General Smirnov, who was the commander of the 2nd Army that was actually carrying out the attack, he would say, and I quote, Victory on your front cannot fail, as you have 11 divisions on a front of only 10 kilometers. Quote. This sort of reliance on human mass... And on its ability to push through offensives, would prove to be deadly to the troops carrying out the attack. The Russians would attack for three days and would gain the ground back that Ludendorff took in the first place, but remember that none of that was really important to begin with. The Russians would lose 40,000 casualties in these counterattacks, and Ruskik would blame the defeat on the lack of resolution by the troops, even after they had attacked multiple times against the defending Germans. The attack would eventually end up being called off simply due to a lack of ammunition. Ruski and the Russians would try to pin the failure on many things, from the men to the commanders, just about anything that could be found to explain away the fact that the Russians had attacked with 11 divisions, which was far more than the Germans they were facing, and they couldn't produce a result. This is a fine example of commanders during the war finding blame away from themselves, instead of looking at their own decisions and actions in search of a cause. Norman stone in his book eastern front would say this of ruzsky's reaction to the failure of the russian attack Quote, "characteristically failure was ascribed for the wrong reasons the inappropriateness of the season the lack of planning the crazy overloading of a single corps commander none was noted after the failure of the gas attack at bolimov ludendorff was not dissuaded from launching more attacks the next planned attack was in the north, around the Masurian lakes, the same site as the battle from 1914. The plan was to use the 10th Army, commanded by General Eichhorn, to circle the lakes from the north, while the 8th Army, commanded by General Bello, came from the south. The attack had two major goals. The first of these goals was to encircle the Russian 10th Army in the Masuria region, cut them off, and then force them to surrender. This wasn't terribly dissimilar from the Battle of Tannenberg, which had a similar goal. The second goal was a bit more grandiose. Ludendorff hoped that by punching through the Russian line in northern Poland, he could then link up with the Austrians coming out of the Carpathians from the south to encircle the entirety of the Russian troops in Poland. Keep in mind that this was all planned before Conrad launched his attack in the Carpathians, and we saw how those went last week, so this second goal is pretty much off the table. The only way the Germans could concentrate enough forces for the attack was to pull troops from Poland and from far eastern Prussia, leaving those two fronts lightly defended, but allowing the Germans to have 15 infantry and 2 cavalry divisions at their disposal for the attack. The Germans would also have artillery superiority during the battle, which was becoming the norm on the eastern front. They would be attacking against the Russian 10th Army, so just so we're clear this is the German and the Russian 10th Army both involved in the same battle, uh, just to up the confusion factor a little bit. This Russian army was composed of 11 infantry and 2 cavalry divisions, so the Germans had a slight advantage in the number of men involved in this attack. The Russians knew that the Germans were amassing troops, but when Ruski heard about the concentrations, he dismissed it. At this time, Ruski was trying to form a new 12th Army, that was to be made up of six Army Corps that would be used for an offensive later in the year. These were being concentrated to the south of the 10th Army, and Ruski believed that while these troops were in the area, the Germans would be unable to attack the 10th Army. The problem is, when the Germans launched their attack, only two of the six planned corps were actually organized and ready to fight. This left the 10th Army without any immediate strategic reserves. The commander of the Russian 10th Army, General Severs, was very concerned with his position, even writing to Ruski stating his fears about his army's position. He had been forced to commit all of his men to the front line, leaving him without any army reserve should the Germans break through. This situation was made worse that because the Russians were pretty poorly fortified in their positions. Norman Stone would say this about the 10th Army's positions. Quote, the trench system was primitive, at best a thin, interrupted ditch over half of their divisions were second-line ones, containing only a tenth of their numbers from front-line troops. And since, in the Russian army, artillery commanders regarded such divisions as barely worth saving, there were always a tendency for guns to be saved at the expense of men. Thankfully for the Russians, the Germans would be launching the attack in the dead of winter. We have already seen how hard it is for armies to attack during this time of year, and this battle would be no exception. It will be cold. Really cold. During the battles, there would be instances of blizzards occurring during the fighting, but even with these difficulties, Ludendorff was confident that he could break through the Russian line and kick them out of Poland completely. As can happen pretty frequently in February in most parts of northern Europe, it began to snow two days before the attack on February 5th. In the two days before the attack on the 7th, it would snow, with reported depths up to 5 feet all along the front. There were also temperatures reported at 40 degrees below zero. This was the point where I was going to make a snarky comment about the differences between the Fahrenheit and Celsius temperature scales, but according to the internet, this is the exact temperature where both scales are the same, so my plan has been foiled. Anyway, regardless of these conditions, the German attack would begin as planned on the 7th of February. On the first day of attacks, the Germans would fall hardest upon a Russian 2nd line division, that found its position completely hopeless. The defenses in the area would best be described as pathetic, and when the German attack came, the division practically disintegrated. Forty-two of the fifty divisional guns survived, at least partly due to a disconnect between the artillery and the infantry. Norman Stone, in in the quote from earlier, discussed this tendency of the Russian artillery commanders to save their guns, being far more concerned about them than the men they were supporting. It is quite interesting reading accounts of these Russian artillery commanders, who were very quick to bring in the horses and gallop the guns away, in comparison to similar situations in the West, where, for example, the British guns would stay at it as long as they could, sometimes far longer than they should, to support the men fighting in front of them. The Russians would go on to dismiss this attack by the Germans as a small attack by a small German detachment. The Germans, however, would continue the attack over the next few days, and on the ninth, three more Russian second-line divisions found themselves under attack. Again, the result was similar, with the forces being almost completely destroyed. Two cavalry divisions on the right flank experienced the same fate. I feel really sorry for these Russian troops at this point. They were put in a position where failure was all but guaranteed, and there was nothing the men could do about it to turn it around. By the 10th, the German 8th Army had advanced far into the left flank of the Russian 10th Army, and on the Russian right, things were going just as poorly. By the 11th, the German troops had broken through the Russian center, and they were moving into the rear. To save the day, Ruski now looked to bring in the still-forming Russian 12th Army that we discussed earlier in a counterattack from the south that he hoped would halt the German attack. To support this attack, the central corps of the Russian 10th Army, the 20th, was told not to retreat, even though they were in serious danger of being cut off by the Russians. The 20th had to hold their ground as much as possible, and tried to delay the Germans while the 12th was brought in and prepared to attack. By the time the order came to withdraw, it was far too late, and the Germans were already moving in around the 20th to surround them completely. It wasn't until the 14th that the Russians finally started to realize how large the German attacking forces really were, Up to this point, the Russians had believed that the entire German 10th Army was actually just a corps. Um, It says something about communication in the area and the chaos of the battle that the Russians believed that the Germans were attacking with about a quarter of their actual strength. Also on February 14th, there was a thaw, and all that ice and snow turned into water, and the ground went from frozen to mud. Soldiers would end up getting drenched during the day, and everything would freeze again during the night. This made the battle even more difficult for the troops on the ground, though through it all, the Russian High Command continued to assure the commander of the 10th Army, in particular the commander of the 20th Corps, that the 12th Army would be coming soon to rescue them. While these assurances were coming in, the 20th Corps found themselves increasingly constricted within the Augusta Forest. And by February the 18th, the Germans were able to decisively seal the 20th Corps into the forest and completely surround them. The Germans then began the process of constricting the area, tighter and tighter, over the next three days, until February the 21st. It got so bad for the Russians that there are records of multiple divisional staffs that were usually miles apart, sharing the same houses as headquarters. Through casualties, deserters, and stragglers, Russian regiments with a full strength of 3,000 men found themselves down to a few hundred. On February the 21st, the 20th Corps would finally surrender, with somewhere between twelve thousand and thirty thousand men. The sources seem to have difficulty agreeing on the number. Most of the men that surrendered were wounded. Apparently a good portion of the healthy men of the 20th were able to escape through the forest, uh, which makes sense. It can be very difficult to properly surround an army in a forest, and it would have been easy for small breaches in the perimeter to develop that would let Russian troops slip through. The Germans, of course, claimed to capture 100,000 men, all told, during the attack, but most historians see this as an exaggeration. The Russian 10th Army lost about 55,000 men, which in the larger scheme of things wasn't greatly disastrous for the Russians. The Germans also captured 185 artillery guns, many of those taken when the 20th surrendered. I know I'm being a bit wishy-washy with a lot of the numbers here, but there's quite a bit of ambiguity depending on which source you read. The Germans were trumpeting this battle as a success on the scale of Tannenberg, so they may have been prone to a bit of exaggeration in their claims of the numbers of men captured. The battle would come to be called the Second Battle of the Meshurian Lakes, or the Winter Battle of Meshuria. And once again, it made Hindenburg a hero in Germany. For the second time in six months, he was invincible and a genius, when in reality it was Ludendorff's planning and the poor Russian preparation that was the cause of the German victory. The one thing that is very real was the fact that the Germans advanced 70 miles. If they had captured 70 miles in the west, the war may have been over, but in the east, it was just a bit of land in Poland with no real strategic value. It didn't help that the Germans couldn't actually continue their advance without first dealing with the fortress of Osoviet on their right flank. The 8th Army was sent to deal with it, since it would seriously threaten the Germans if they advanced any further. Unfortunately for the 8th Army, a would prove to be well defended, and it would become quite the obstacle. A wasn't the most impressive fortification, not by a long shot. But the defenders were smart about using the strengths that they did have, and they used flexible positions that would bend and not break to the German attacks, from which they would immediately counterattack. Even after the Germans had launched several attacks, and used almost a quarter of a million artillery rounds, the fortress still stood. Along the front in the area, there was quite a bit of seesawing back and forth as well. In the last week of February, two actions took place that saw both sides capture 30,000 prisoners. By early March, the Germans were forced to retreat back to the Prussian borders, after constant pressure from the Russians. At the end of the day, the Germans found themselves once again back where they started, with nothing but some prisoners and some Russian casualties to show for their actions. Before we leave the Eastern Front for a while, we have just one more early year offensive to discuss, and it seems only fitting to end the second of two Eastern-focused episodes with another offensive in the Carpathians, this time by the Russians. After the second Masturian-Lanx battles, Ruski was put on the defensive, and he even thought the smart thing to do would be to abandon all of the exposed areas in central Poland, but this would compromise positions in the south, so he couldn't do that. There was also a few reasons to launch an attack on the Carpathians. There was the plan Dardanelles action that the British would soon be launching, so this would sort of be in support of that, although a bit tangentially. The entry of Italy into the war was imminent, something we will go into more detail next week, and by attacking Austria-Hungary, Russia would be helping the Italians. Then there was also the pride angle. There were a few countries looking to join in the war in the region, and the Russians wanted to be the ones to hit Austria-Hungary with the knockout blow. They had spent so much blood already trying, and they didn't want the Italians to steal their achievement. And finally, this was really all the Russians could do to help the Western allies in their attacks in early spring. Any attempts against the German front was doomed to failure, so they hoped an attack in the south would be a success. These were the reasons that Ivanov was told to attack through the Carpathians and into Hungary, but once again he found the other front commanders a bit less than accommodating. Rusky certainly wasn't giving up any troops after what happened at the Meshurian lakes, and Alexiev in the center was less supportive than he had been in previous months. Because of these reasons, the attack would be launched with only the 30 divisions already on the front. The best that Ivanov could do was to pull some troops from the soon-to-surrender Chemischel and from his right wing, so that he could launch the attack with some level of concentration on his left wing. The conditions were a bit more favorable, at least the temperatures were a bit higher, than when the Austrians had launched their attacks earlier in the year. And there was a period of thaw in the mountains that helped to cut down on the ice and snow. Oh, and what they were facing on the Austrian side could barely be considered an army. The Austrian 2nd Army had lost 52,000 men in the week just before the Russian attack, and the combined German-Austrian force in the center was down to a third strength, and the other Austrian armies were roughly the same. The mood at Conrad's headquarters could best be described as tense, to the point of desperation. The Russians were actually quite smart about how they would carry out the attack. They would attack with short, sharp, small attacks through the passes in the mountains. They would win some territory, and then stop, and dig in, and then do another leap later. This was an early instance of the bite-and-hold tactics that we would later see on the western front, and here, even without the masses of artillery found in the west, they were successful. Part of this success is because the Austrian commanders believed they had to stand absolutely firm and not give up a single piece of the passes. If the Russians could push through, they would presumably march on Budapest. Because of this need to never take a step backwards, the Austrians often put their men in compromising positions that the Russians took advantage of. By early April, as the attacks continued, the Austrians were screaming for help from the Germans. They were sent another corps, this time under General Marvitz, who brought troops from Ludendorff in the north and was also given the command of what was left of the German troops the Austrians had got earlier in the year. This new German force played a part, along with lack of supplies, in bringing the Russian attack to an end. Ivanov would officially halt the offensive on April the 10th, with the largest gains being made by General Alexei Brusilov and the Russian 8th Army. Who had captured miles of passes leading into the Danube River Valley. Ivanov cited high losses, exhaustion, and the complete thawing of supply routes that made it almost impossible to move supplies, combined with renewed snowfalls at higher elevations as the reason that the attack was called off without achieving its goal. The one thing that the attack did do is it pulled yet more German troops down into the mountains making it more difficult for the Germans to amass enough troops to launch large offensives in the north. It will be a while before we come back to the Eastern Front, so it may be best to take stock of what has happened over the first few months of 1915. In the north, the Germans had attacked several times, and had in a few occasions like the Second Battle of the Mesharian Lakes been able to capture large amounts of enemy territory, However, by April, they found themselves right back where they started, on the border between Prussia and Russia. In the center, on the borders of Poland, the front was more fortified than anywhere else in the east. In the south, the lines ran through the Carpathian Mountains, where it was extremely difficult to launch an attack either way. The Russians had lost almost 2 million men in the war so far, but still dominated the front from Krakow south, uh, through the mountains, while the Germans had superiority in the north but not enough superiority to deal any decisive blow. The Austrians, as we covered last episode, were in a real pickle. They were in serious trouble in just about every way imaginable, and it was only going to get worse. And that is where we will leave the Eastern Front, for about 20 episodes, as we move off to other theaters and other operations. We will be back later in the year to find out how the Germans finally are able to knock the Russians back a bit, in what will be called or rather ominously, the Great Retreat. Next episode, we will be looking at some of the countries who have, or will be soon, entering the war, such as the Ottoman Empire in Italy, all of whom will very soon begin to affect our story. As always, thank you for listening, and you can check out more information about the show at historyofthegreatwar.com, facebook.com slash historyofthegreatwar, or twitter.com slash historygreatwar.